White Winter, Chapter 6. This all happened six or seven years ago, at the very height, if you could call it that, of Strangle Cat's success. We weren't just playing Don't Look Back in Anger and Hey Jude in Beer Gardens anymore. We were actually playing some original material. Heatwave Summer was undoubtedly our biggest hit back then, after Give Us Your Love Overdose. We even had some people singing along to the chorus of the former every now and then, which was a surreal experience. Don't care if you're still, don't care if you're a runner, I'll wait for you here, in this last heatwave summer. Cheesy, I know. We never headlined any huge festivals, but we did get to play at some of the local ones. You know the kind, where there are hundreds of stalls selling hemp hygiene items and falafel based tortillas. There were nine separate stages playing music all at once, that barely anyone was listening to anyway. We also opened for some semi-popular bands like Iron Graft and Jimmy James and the Fahrenheits. I'll tell you now that Lawrence Simpson is a lovely fella, but Jimmy James is a bit of a creep. He kept staring at Amy's chest when we were trying to chat to him backstage. After all that, we were paid to play at a few parties and even some weddings. It was amazing how it suddenly went from this thing we were doing for the crack every weekend for our own creative catharsis into something that was fast gaining its own sort of unstoppable momentum. We thought that we'd struck gold, that this train was on a one-way track to fame and fortune. Frank Taggart was our fearless leader in those days, of course. He was our big selling point. He had heterochromia, which, for those of you in the dark, is not some kind of STD that only affects straight people. All it means is that his eyes were different colours, one green and one hazel. To go with this, he had a sharp, angular face and fluffy hair. I know what you're thinking, and yes, others have often made the Bowie comparison, but he was very different from Bowie in terms of style. Not only could he do a raspy, emotional baritone ballad reminiscent of Cohen, but he also had this angelic falsetto that evoked Buckley. Jeff, of course, not Tim, and he could perform a rock song with Springsteen levels of energy. It was as if someone had engineered him in a lab. Am I going to sit here and tell you that he was a patch on Mercury for vocal range? No. But I'll tell you what, he could make a hell of a frontman for a Queen tribute band. In addition to all of that, he could lyricize like Dylan, could charm like Jagger, and could inspire like Lennon. Or at least, these things were all inflated beliefs I held of him at one time or another. Perhaps I saw him through an enhanced lens, but I do believe there was something uniquely special about Frank Taggart. Basically, the bastard had the god-given talent that I'd always dreamed of. Playing with him was like being hitched to a wagon, pulled by someone who was destined to become a legend, if only they had the right strokes of luck. Because the ugly truth about the music industry is that, even with all the talent in the world, you still need that luck. Luckily, Frank's family was wealthy, and he was only 21. Even then, I wondered how he'd gone so long without being snatched up by another band, before deciding to join ours. We had just finished Limfest, at the end of August, opening for Puzzle Melt, when he wrote into the group chat that he'd booked a house in the countryside just out past Glenlock. It's in the middle of December, he told us, from the 8th to the morning of the 19th, booked for 11 days. He sent us a few impressive pictures and informed us that it was fully paid for already, as a treat, and since the fridges were stocked with food, we weren't expected to spend a penny. Naturally, but while remaining polite, we inquired as to why on earth he'd book a holiday house in the middle of winter. Something different. There's less demand in the cold months, so it was far more affordable. 
Plus, I thought it'd be a nice refresher, a good bonding experience for the band in the run-up to Christmas. Amazing, Eddie wrote into the group chat. She looks an absolute belter of a house. Before I proceed, I have to explain here that we were all acutely aware that we'd pretty much hit the jackpot with Frank. He was outrageously talented. We knew he was our potential ticket, so we were already in the habit of simply going along with whatever he suggested. So everyone praised the idea and the pictures of the property before I wrote, that's a random number of days. Not one week, not two weeks, but 11 nights. My reasons will be revealed soon, but the amount of time is intentional. Please let me know if you can get it booked off. Because the band was gaining so much popularity and we were making money on the side through our gigs, we were all able to work either freelance, part-time or flexible hours, which gave us more leeway to do our tours. So none of us had any bother in getting the days off, especially with so much notice given. I had the annual leave to cover it, but a few of the others would have to take a couple of unpaid days. Frank assured us it'd be well worth it. Over the next couple of months, we continued to play around a few small venues, building our brand, as Eddie put it, vomit. Closer to the time, Frank wrote in for us all to ensure we brought our instruments along too. I thought this was supposed to be a break, Gareth said. I just think we'll all want a few jamming sessions wedged in there, Frank said. Like, do any of you really want to go 10 days without playing? And of course, none of us did. We all loved to play. There was nobody in Stranglecat like those artists you hear that secretly despise their craft, or who just treat it like another job. I was a troubled young man in those days, as I think you'll all recall was perfectly exhibited by my luminous orange hair, my single blonde eyebrow contrasting against the black one, and my nine facial piercings. I got rid of everything, apart from the neck tattoos, which are an unfortunate lasting legacy of that era. I was chronically anxious and depressed, but would not be prescribed the tag team of sertraline and propranerol for a few years, so I was still raw-dogging life back then. My only truly happy, carefree moments, aside from hanging out with all of you, of course, were the jamming sessions with Strangle Cat and the gigs. I even loved belting out and so Sally can wait a thousand times to the beer gardens. In December, we took two separate cars to our destination. I drove Steph the country bumpkins that we were, in my trusty Cleo, while the city-slicking Gareth, Amy and Eddie all piled in with Frank into his BMW. Steph and I didn't mind. We had a ball, singing along to the radio. But I can see you, your brown skin shining in the sun, you got your hair combed back and your sunglasses on, baby. I can tell you, my love for you will still be strong, after the boys of summer have gone. Steph high-fived me after our passionate duet, before declaring, a bit more practice and I fancy us as lead vocalists. I snorted. Imagine that. Frank would throw a foot. Steph raised her legs and sat in a yoga pose. She was wearing those weird, five-finger shoes again. The tropical colours stood in stark contrast against her beige poncho. We made quite a pair, me with my bleached eyebrow and her with her beaded braids. I loved her to bits, like a sister, but she could be a bit of a crazy vegan socialist hippie at times. But that was also what made her cool. You know? To be honest, I was just happy that she was wearing shoes and socks at all today, as she had insisted performing several of our previous gigs barefoot. The image of her, sitting backstage, with jet black soles, picking out debris from between her toes, will haunt me until my dying days. What do you think this is all about? She asked me. What do you mean? Didn't Frank tell us it's a bonding exercise for the band? Oh, you're so gullible, Conrad. 
I am. Sure, I know he said it's a brick, but have you seen him lately? Seen him how? Don't tell me you haven't noticed how obsessive he's become. Does he really come across as the type to take a brick? Yes, I had noticed that. He was throwing himself about a lot more on stage as he became increasingly swept up in the performance. It was like a drug to him. As a consequence of this, he was also shouting and screaming the lyrics a lot more. Like, I knew he was a big fan of Pixies and Nirvana, but the Cobainisms were becoming a touch frightening. It was as if the highs from the music were so much so that he was empty and disconnected when he'd returned to regular life. We like to joke that he had multiple personalities. Frank the Artist was of course the predominant one, which Steph had simply dubbed Frank the Wank, which would evolve into simply Wank. In regular life, he was becoming less and less like Frank the Charmer, and more and more like Frank the Zombie. And I sort of got that in a way that frightened me even more. I related to it in a way that I believe every artistically predisposed person can. However, Frank was on another level. Sometimes, on stage, he became so passionate that he had to be worked with afterwards, to calm down, as if he were on the verge of a panic attack, clinging dangerously to a cliff's edge. I remember once, he was backstage, trembling so much that he seemed possessed. Amy had to spray him with cold water to help bring him around. I was worried about the future of the band, maybe a bit selfishly, so I dragged Gareth aside and asked him if Frank was either on gear or something even worse. I know he likes psychedelics every now and then, but I thought he was against habitual drug use. If you use a drug more than once a month, you're an addict, he'd once declared, causing us all to look at each other uncomfortably. No, Connor. Gareth had responded to my question. He's stone cold sober. I was with him the whole day before we went on stage. This is just how he gets. I returned to the Cleo, to the present, to the music and to Steph. He'll be grand, I said. He probably recognises that he needs to switch off for a while, like the rest of us. Yeah, you can say that again. I was beginning to think we might need to stage an intervention for him. I dwelt on this, gripping the steering wheel extra tight. After a couple more of our world famous duets, Steph and I arrived upon the coast. We drove in through a small town, which was mostly shuttered, with barely anyone in sight. A few miles beyond that, we climbed into green hills, the type that sloped and crested all over the island's coast. The house itself took some finding, because the satnav kept insisting that the area didn't actually exist. Go figure. We had to go off Eddie's dubious directions before we found a large, wide house almost totally isolated from all else within the hills, with the nearest neighbour being roughly a quarter mile away. The grey, roaring Atlantic Ocean was only a stone's throw from the front doorstep. Between the ocean and the hills was the long, shell-strewn golden stretch known as Kinney Beach. It could be busy in the summer, Frank told us, but would likely be dead during our stay, which proved to be the case today. A small, gravel trail twisted up the hill, levelling out onto a concrete overlook which the house was perched upon. We parked off to the side of this spacious platform and had a smoke while we waited for Frank's car to arrive. Wonder if his BMW would even fit up that trail, Steph said. It'll be some job getting it loose if it does get stuck, I said. How long do you reckon the AA would take to get up here? Frank's BMW, however, despite being packed to the brim with bandmates, instruments and suitcases, had little trouble reaching the concrete platform. He expertly parked just next to us. Once he was out, I saw he was wearing a burgundy coat which fell to his knees along with his circular, winter glasses which supposedly kept off the harsh white glare. Steph and I were shivering, already half frozen. Nice of you to show up, 
Steph called. Sorry, Frank said. The congestion was brutal on the motorway. He unlocked the front door, and we all clamoured free. The enormity of the house could only truly be appreciated from the inside. Immediately, we were greeted by an open plan, with the kitchen, living room, and dining room adjoined as part of the same enormous space. The dining room table could have hosted a party of 20, and the living room suite could have sat 20 more. After that, we set about exploring the rest of the area. There was a lovely conservatory attached to the living room. On the second floor, there were a few bedrooms and bathrooms. There was even a pool hall with four pool tables. Further up the stairs, on the third floor, was a library. I knew that Frank and Eddie, who were cousins, had come from wealth, that their granddad had been some sort of big shot architect in Dublin, and that both their parents owned a lot of property. But damn, a fucking library. How much did you say this place set you back, Frank? Amy asked. Never you worry about that, Frank said. It'll be well worth it, Eddie said. And there's one more surprise, Frank added. He led us to the far back corner of the house, to where there was a narrow lane ending in a heavy door. Behind the heavy door, which had to be unlocked by keys, he revealed a sound studio. The studio was a combination of two rooms. One was a soundproofed padded recording room with a mic, mic stand, pop filter and chair. From the mic, a cable was fed through the wall into an adjoining technical area which had a window into the recording room. The technical area had six chairs which surrounded a monitor and an audio interface complete with a mixing board. Holy shit, Steph said. What's all this about? Gareth asked, toying with the mic stand, adjusting it up and down. Frank grinned and winked at Eddie and just like that, there he was, Frank the Charmer. There was our hyper-focused frontman. Well, I suppose I'd better reveal my intentions. Steph nudged me and whispered, You owe me a fiver. We didn't bet on it, I snapped. I we did, in my mind at least. Go on, Frank, Eddie encouraged. Well, there's probably no better way to put it than to just come out and say it. I want us to record an album. There was a long pause. An album? Amy finally asked, with the same incredulity as if Frank had just declared how he wanted us all to go elf hunting and he might as well have done that. It might have felt equally as out of the blue. This was a lot to shovel onto us. We were all looking about at each other, until Gareth found the courage to ask, and why on earth will we do that? We haven't even recorded one of our songs yet, Steph added. That's like going to the moon before you've invented the aeroplane. Frank stroked his chin. The way I see it is that recording a single song, then calling it a day, is like going hunting and then going home after you've caught a rat. Sure, you might say that at least that's something to eat, but why not try for something bigger and more appetizing while we're out? In response to this, we all glanced at each other, as if trying to communicate telepathically, beneath Frank's notice. We're all ready, aren't we? Frank asked as he faced us all in equal regard. Look, we have all the equipment and capability, and people know who Strangle Cat are now, thanks to Eddie and his marketing. A little heavy up from the bank of Mommy and Daddy had certainly helped with that. It was easy to appear like a genius marketer when you could simply rent out billboards, create t-shirts and buy ads on radio stations and podcasts with little risk or consequence of failure. And thanks to us for, you know, actually playing the songs, Steph said. Of course, Eddie said. I'm not taking anything away from all of you. After all, you are the talent. Without a great product, I'd have nothing to sell. Great product. I shuddered. Why did everything that Eddie said make me want to take a bath? Regardless of where exactly you see us on the track, Frank said, 
I think we can all agree that we are at least approaching the stage where we need to take this more seriously. But Frank, I said to him, we only have like six original songs. We would have had a lot more, but he was so harsh and selective on what he allowed us to develop. Song skeletons that I thought had been catchy, that had some decent potential, that were worked and reworked, were dumped into the scrap heap. Yeah, Gareth said, six songs is more of an EP than an LP. And they're such different styles that I doubt they'd really fit well together, Steph said. State of Emergence couldn't go on the same album as Ride My Scooter, for example. Frank waved the dismissive hand. We won't be using any of those anyway. We won't, Amy said. I was not the only one stunned by the casual apathy with which he delivered that, like those six songs that had brought about all our current success, that people now sang along to, that we worked so hard to fine tune, were just meaningless. I suppose that is why I could never be a genius. I cared too much, especially when there was a time investment attached. Frank could care deeply, could become completely and utterly obsessed over something, and then turn around one day and chuck it in the bin. That's why I brought us here, isolated, in the hills, in winter, for inspiration, if we trap ourselves away from all distractions, all outside stimuli, then our creativity will thrive, it will come to the forefront, just like it did for Radiohead when they wrote Kid A and reinvented themselves. Stranglecat also need to reinvent ourselves. I mean, Radiohead had OK Computer and the bands prior to that, Amy said. And Pablo Honey, Gareth said, trying to mask it between coughs. Right, how can we reinvent ourselves when we haven't even been invented yet? Steph asked. Frank faced her. There was no hostility within his expression, just a serious, resolute attention. Like you said, Stephanie, our songs don't fit together. That's understandable. We've been experimental and have tried to find our unique style while juggling so many influences. It'd be next to impossible to make a cohesive work from what has come before. That's why we're going to write this completely from scratch. A concept album. But in 10 days? I asked. 10 days, Steph repeated. Not weeks. Stop limiting yourselves. Entire novels have been written in a shorter time period. Award-winning screenplays have been penned in one sitting. Iconic paintings have been made in a matter of hours. The subconscious is far more powerful than we allow it to be. When we make a conscious decision and effort to make space for inspiration, inspiration is what fills us. Human beings are capable of amazing feats of creativity, once we dare to unshackle ourselves. Now I am not saying that we have to have it edited, mixed, mastered and polished in this run of 10 days but I am suggesting that we write and record the raw materials, then we can touch everything up in the future. Even without the editing work, Gareth said, 10 bloody days. When it's taken us years to come up with six songs, I pointed out. That was because we were still finding our feet. 10 days is one song per day. We can do that. We just have to record as much as we can, even if that means hours and hours for each track. That sounds like a lot of work, Amy said. It will be. But I've made a head start. Frank knelt down and unburdened his backpack. From it, he produced a book. It was similar in size to the usual tattered journal he liked to scrawl lyrics in. That one had had loose yellow pages that were spilling out and scars all over the leather binding. This one was a sleeker, elegant black. I've been inspired. You see, this all started after I had a dream about this album. A dream? Gareth asked with a tone that went well with all our expressions. It wasn't just any old dream though, it was otherworldly, like a message being sent to me, 
like it was demanding to be created. Christ on a bike, Steph muttered. I've got notes and ideas galore, but it's jumbled. Too big for me to work it out alone. I need help of putting it together. I need more creative juice from my bandmates to fill in the gaps. I need you. That was sort of touching, in its own semi-delusional way. We decided to humour him, for now, because it would probably all fall apart and prove unfeasible on its own, after the first day. That night, we discussed the general themes of the album as Frank passed around the book. He wanted it to be slow, methodical, psychedelic rock, reminiscent of Dark Side of the Moon, melded with a traditional folk and blues rock fusion, evoking early Led Zeppelin. I want it to be dissonant, but dark and moody. I want it to be orchestral in patches and abrasive in others. I want it to feel minimalist on the surface, but vast when one dares to delve beneath that. It will be both profound and nihilistic, tipping from one end of the spectrum to the other, with every single note. So all we have to do is play like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, not asking much of a band that mostly plays weddings. Amy said. We won't be playing any weddings after this, Frank said seriously. Just you wait. I can see it all so clearly. The album had its own mythology. It was centred around a world of symmetrical, complementary chaos. Eventually, we settled on the name of Mirrors and Mania. The next day, the hills had transformed into a dusty white as we were greeted by a morning frost. Amy was playing Christmas tunes on her bass guitar in order to keep the festive spirit alive. We Wish You a Merry Christmas was shortly followed up by I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. Eddie informed us that we were afforded an hour to get some breakfast and enjoy a cup of coffee. Kind of him, I thought. I even got to enjoy watching the sunrise while having a fag out front with Steph. The smoke melded with the fog of our breaths. Ready to create art? She asked. Ready to change the world? I responded. Fuck Zeppelin. And fuck Floyd. She grinned broadly. Come on in then. When we entered, we went into the conservatory, or what we would later term as our songwriting room. Because once the furniture was pushed back or removed, there was loads of space for all our instruments to be set up. This is lovely, Amy said. We're just missing a few Christmas decorations here and there, Gar said. What would we want decorations for when we have nature at every window, at every angle, completely surrounding us? Frank asked. Winter has arrived, just in time to inspire us. It's as if it was waiting for us. Steph rolled her eyes and I had to suppress a laugh. Frank was saying more and more shit like that, ever since we'd started to get bigger, as if a camera or biographer was following us along and were ready to immortalise his most profound quotes. Right, let's get on with it, Eddie said, huddled in his corner. Frank presented his black book and showed us the bones of the lyrics he was thinking about for a song. He even supplied a hypnotic melody to it, but it was more in line with Garcia than Plant, I thought. Gareth, clearly inspired by what he heard, was struggling to keep himself from interrupting. As soon as he was presented an opportunity, he said, I think this would be a good drumbeat for it, and he proceeded to add his bit. After that, Amy introduced some complimentary bass. Already, it was sounding pretty good. This only served to assist Frank in getting a stronger grasp on his concept, as if it were a developing photo becoming clear by the second. It was like, after hearing the additional parts, it sent him deeper into that trance, as if more of the melody and more of the lyrics just came to him on the fly. Effortless. It was magical to watch the bastard at it. I had always wanted to be like that too, but couldn't figure out how it was done. Where did such ideas even come from? They arrived so inspired, so fully formed, whereas mine were like sediment, drawn from a riverbed, 
I tried desperately to filter out the flecks of gold from the dirt, if there were any even in there. How could Frank just feel it, I wondered. How could he sing something so beautiful in response to a piece of drum and bass? It was difficult not to feel inspired by it, infected. That was another thing about Frank. Not only did he contain his own creativity, but it was like its own force, like gravity, and we, as his bandmates, were often caught in its orbit. Stephanie joined in, adding some rhythm guitar to the jam. After that, Frank started swaying and barking out the lyrics as he entered a deeper level of his self-induced trance. Eddie just sat there on the armchair, beaming, as he bore witness to Frank the artist emerging from the cocoon he'd formed to protect himself from the dullness of the mundane world. The melody and lyrics expanded from there. Finally, I added to the jam, overdue, in the form of lead guitar. I remember feeling rusty at the start as I sifted through the dirt and played a few rough, ugly notes, as if I was the one letting this talented group of people down. But gradually, as I continued to play, I lost my nerves and muscle memory took over, and as pretentious as this sounds, it felt like the song was playing me. I became its instrument. Already, we felt like we had the spine of the song, now it was just about polishing it up, making it sharper, as Eddie would often say. He'd rotate his hand, circle us and say, this is great, this is fucking mint, but we've got to make it cleaner, we've got to tidy it up a bit. It was a flurry of work, just as Amy had speculated, with nothing relaxing about it, despite the ethereal beauty of those frosted winter hills surrounding us on every side. Outside, I could see the tendrils of fog rolling through the hills as if they were fingers belonging to some giant ghost. The glass of the conservatory windows frosted over, as if they were made of ice, as if they might shatter should we play a wrong note. Summer heatwaves seemed a million years ago. It was clear, from the off, that all of Mirrors and Mania was not just an album that would merely be moulded by winter, but one that would be birthed into its very heart. Was it draining? Yes. Because creativity is one of those weird paradoxes that can both invigorate and sap simultaneously. I suppose it's comparable to exercise in that way, replenishing, yet exhausting. The obvious outcome of the latter is to achieve better health and fitness, but that feeling is far less tangible than the act of having created something after a long session. I cannot quite adequately describe the feeling of deepest fulfilment. When it hit noon, the song was almost fully formed as a 15 minute jamming behemoth. Too long, Eddie would say as he circled, it's brilliant, but it's far too long. I would have liked to point out to him, were I not so in the zone, that if we were truly emulating Pink Floyd, then we were not so far off the length of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Or, maybe we could be like Sonic Youth and just release the best segments of our jamming sessions and be damned with traditional song structure. But no, Frank had a vision and we kept slicing it down until it was more in line with that, as he tried to find the heart of the song, the most engaging five minutes. When it was finally an appropriate length, there were structural issues which had to be ironed out. Sometimes art is as beautiful to create as it is to consume, but for the most part, you're just trying to bang out the dents with a mallet and sand away the sharp edges. We have it, I said at the end of the session. I couldn't stop beaming because I had never previously thought I could be part of something so pure. I never believed I could contribute to such a work of genius. Obviously, I'm biased, but it really did feel like a song from a classic album, something familiar, like it was torn from Exile on Main Street or Who's Next. But it also felt fresh enough to feel totally original and non-derivative. The others were all grinning ear to ear. I even spotted some proud tears speckled among them. 
Frank wasn't grinning though. He just said, we have the live version and that's all we have. After lunch, we'll start to record. We had a lunch where Frank insisted that we only consume nuts, seeds, olive oil and salad because it was nutrient dense, filling, hydrating and apparently we were less likely to experience a heightened dopamine response that we'd receive from consuming anything overtly sweet. It was rather bland food that lacked stimulation because in Frank's words it'd keep us revitalised but without soaking up any of our creative juices. I didn't know if that was complete horseshit but I went along with it as did everyone else but Steph and I did sneak a cigarette right after our lunch which I doubt our noble leader would have approved of very much. That's going to ruin your voices one of these days, he'd raged at us when he first found out. If you don't treat your instrument with respect, then how can you expect it to respect you back? Nobody's around to quote you, dickhead. And you might be a creative genius, but when it comes to regular life, you're just as lost and scared as the rest of us. That's what I thought at the time, but never found the courage to say to him. After that, we delved into the studio to record. We did this in a totally different order from the actual writing process, instead of Frank's vocals coming first, as they almost always did during our creation phase, Eddie instructed us that the rhythm would need to be recorded first so that we could use it for tempo against everything that came afterwards. The vocals might be the skin and the guitar the muscles, but the beat is the sinew. Once the drum and bass were recorded to everyone's satisfaction, Steph did her part on the rhythm guitar. A few times, she lost patience with Frank and Eddie's demands which required her to repeat her section over and over again until she eventually got it down. Next, she added her backing vocals and then I did mine. I took a lot more takes than I should have, to be honest, but I was shitting myself. All of that expensive equipment, plus all the eyes and focus of my bandmates, caused me to lose my nerve a little. But on the next phase, when I added in the lead guitar, I felt confident and managed to nail it on my third take. Good form, Connor, Gareth had said patting me on the back. Frank the artist said absolutely nothing. He was as wordless and as focused as an elite fighter as he entered the booth and belted out his vocals. At the end, his face was red and his chest was rising and falling as rapidly as if he had just been in an actual physical altercation with an MMA fighter. I thought that his first take was perfect until he insisted on doing a second and then I realised that that was even better and could not possibly be topped until he did exactly that on the third and then the fourth, and once again on the fifth, rising and climbing and cresting. It was on the seventh take, where he moaned, he crooned and screamed, that full on chills radiated throughout my body. It was insane, but it almost felt like a natural high to listen to him, like it somehow changed my brain chemistry temporarily, making me both lost and more aware. I was filled with thoughts of grandeur after that, I kept imagining the stadiums we would fill and how people would be repeating those same lyrics that Frank had just delivered for generations. I know that every journeyman band must entertain similar notions at some point in their lifespan, but it really suddenly felt completely realistic. Actually, in that moment, it felt fucking inevitable. At night, Eddie doled out praise, telling us we'd all done well. In addition to this, we were treated to better food now that we no longer had to save up our creativity. You're not afraid of us spunking all our creative juices or anything? Steph asked. Not at night. Sleep mostly will reset us back to our baseline, Frank said. I didn't care about the logic behind it. Those were some of the best chips and roasted veg I'd had in my life. The burger made love to me. Frank informed us, between sips of red wine, of which we were all measured out one 125ml glass each, 
that our first song would be called The Lonely Cyclone. He believed it would appear as the fur track on the album. It has fur track energy, he said. I personally didn't know what the hell that meant, but just went along with it. Before bed, Eddie tinkered around with the tracks, fusing them together to give us a sample, a taster of what the end product might sound like after the weeks of syncing, mixing and editing were finally finished. When he played it back to us, we all just sat in the technical room in awe. It didn't feel like listening to Strangle Cat. It felt like listening to a different band, with unrecognisable members. Obviously, the puzzle doesn't quite fit together, Eddie said, but we should have enough there that the pieces should be able to be manoeuvred into something special. No, I said quietly. It already is special. It's the best thing we've ever written, Amy said in way of agreement. You know, Gareth said, I've always had this fear that we'd never top Heatwave Summer, that we'd hit our peak, but that song doesn't even have 1% of the creativity of this. It's a start, Frank said, but we've got nine more songs to write after this, so I want us all up bright and early again tomorrow. You can have an hour or two to rejuvenate if you wish. I will be meditating, following my cold plunge, but if you'd like to get some coffee or take a walk along the beach, then that's fine too. After that, it's back to work. That night, I had the most vivid dream of my life, thus far. I was in a vast darkness, where there were these towers of dark glass embedded into the earth all around me. As I walked along the path, weaving between them, which was made of a sort of rippling, liquid marble, I glimpsed into the glass surfaces and saw the mirror world. Within them, I saw versions of my bandmates, the mirror them, which existed simultaneously on the other side. At each blank monolith, I saw a mirror me, passing, matching my exact stride. He was a corpse-like spectre, strumming on his guitar as he walked. At each square, he'd play me a different tune, all while grinning his wide, skeletal grin. The next day, Steph and I had a cigarette. You all know by now that after consuming fast mountains of books, audiobooks and podcasts, that I'd eventually find the will to leave the smokes in my past. I had cut down from smoking about 40 a day, as a 19 year old, to about 5 a day at that point, and even those simply felt like a ritual, or a reason to stand and gather thought. The pair of us had discussed going to the beach, but the frost was so brutal that it was scarcely worth it. Surprised Frank isn't down there swimming in it, Steph said. Cold fucking showers. Good lord. What goes through his head? I grunted. Are you alright? I told her about my dream. She paused in the middle of taking her next drag, before saying, I dreamt about music as well, and that mirror world place. I stared at her to see if she was taking the piss, but when it became clear she was serious, I said, that's mental. No, it's not, Connor, and I'll tell you why. Why? Because yesterday, we spent the whole damn day playing music. If we'd spent all day driving, then we probably would have dreamt we were in Formula One. It's all subconscious and all that shite, isn't it? I nodded, thinking that yes, That made sense. Feeling whips strike my head, I realised that hailstones were beginning to fall. Oh, for fuck's sake. Some holiday this is. We all rushed inside. Steph's explanation of our dream sync could also explain why the others came to report having similar dreams. Dreams which had inspired them upon waking. Amy, who'd been a talented sketch artist long before she ever picked up a bass guitar, showed us her sketch pad. It was amazing. She'd drawn about a dozen of those spectres, of the folk who existed within the mirror world, who were wandering aimlessly through the mist. I marvelled at how she'd completed so many in one morning. Human beings are capable of amazing feats of creativity, 
once they dare to unshackle themselves. Great. Now Frank quotes were even reverberating around my own head. It scared me how similar Amy's drawings were to the figures in my own dreams, but I reasoned that if we had all been supplanted with similar ideas, thanks to the mythology Frank constructed, then it made sense to have so much overlap. Frank instructed Eddie to tear them out, one by one, and to place them around the house. I want them in the kitchen, the bathroom, and some of those windows in the conservatory. I want us to be immersed in that world, to keep creating in it, and to live in it. Great, Gareth said. Now we get to have Amy's creepy art hanging over us while we're taking a shit. Ugh, TMI Gary, Amy said. I noticed that, just before we'd gone in, Stephanie had folded her legs in that yoga slash meditation pose that she often found herself in, and was scribbling furiously into her notepad. I glanced over her shoulder and asked what she was doing. Don't tell me you're turning into Frank Jr. Definitely not. One's insufferable enough. Instead of explaining, she handed me the pad and I began reading. It turned out that she wasn't writing lyrics at all, but lore. Not just any lore either, but a creation story for the mirror world. One that was tied to our own. Frank's mythology had been concerned with the present, how the world existed now, while Stephanie's explained more about how it came to be. It had existed for a long time and was much, much more ancient than our own universe, making ours seem like an infant by comparison. It was so old that all planets and stars were gone, having melted into the oblivion. All that was left was the darkness and the monoliths and the spectres, which had been there, wandering for eons, until they attached themselves to us. They fed on our experiences, as if it was some sort of parasitic relationship, and it was from them that we derived our misery, our violence, and of course, our desire. Not sure if I like that, I remarked. She shrugged. I don't really know where it came from, to be honest. I just started writing it. Hey, she said, after a sudden smile found her face. Maybe I'm linked into the mirror world. Like Wi-Fi? Or like a radio receiving transmissions from one of those big tower thingies? Maybe that's where all creative ideas originally come from. From big tower thingies? No, from the mirror world. I knew what she meant. I was being intentionally dense. She framed it as a joke, but I just felt cold. If that were true, did that mean that people who held the deepest ideas, who dug into the very depths of their art, were the most linked into this other world? It was strange, because outside of those hills, in what I'd come to term as the real world, Frank was always our lone songwriter. Or at least, he was the one who spearheaded things, acting as the vocal point of all inspiration. But within that house, it was a much more democratic process, as we all took it in turns. On the second day, as the hail battered against the windows of the conservatory, as we all began jamming, I started randomly playing one of the songs from my dreams. It was just as Steph had described with her writing. It just sort of took over. I kept on playing and exploring, automatically. I wondered if this was how Frank felt all the time. Did he just come up with new ideas before he even produced the present ones in his head? How did he prevent himself from getting overwhelmed? Speaking of the man himself, Frank was staring at me. For a second, I thought that he was angry, until he pointed at me and demanded, play that one again. I did just that. We began fleshing the melody out, and after flicking through his book, Frank found some lyrics that he believed might be suitable. Soon, we added rhythm to it, then the guitars, then the backing vocals, and finally the main vocals. Again, we were left with a behemoth of a song, a 12-minute manic ride that made Bohemian Rhapsody feel stripped back. We progressively whittled it down, over the course of repeated playbacks, into a smaller, more compact song. Needs to be sharper. Needs to be tighter. 
Eddie would say between sniffs, and I wondered if he was back on the powder. Certainly, that would explain why he kept coming and going every 20 minutes. After recording, that song was the second that we had created, but would appear as number 8 on the album under the title Interluding. We've done it again, Gareth declared. We really might have something here, Amy said, despite it perhaps being even better, in a technical sense, than the Lonely Cyclone. I felt hollow as Eddie played it back. All celebrations from the others were just as muted, even at dinner. It was Frank who gave those reasons voice. Still a long way to go, he said. Yes, a long way to go. The nightmares were worse that night. I was back in the dark place, walking the liquid marble path that wove between the glass windows into the mirror world. Only now, some of those corpse-like spectres, those human-shaped parasites, began emerging from their boxes, out onto the marble path, to walk with me in the world in between. A stench of rot and decay emanated from the beings. I didn't even want to go near them. I didn't like the look of those empty, eyeless holes or those tongueless mouths that they moaned from. I was soon cornered by one of them though, as it stalked me and eventually trapped me between three adjoining monoliths. My back hit the glass as the parasitic creature opened its mouth to reveal a maw that was like a miniature black hole. It smelled like dead flowers. I woke up with a start and realised I'd been clawing at my sheets. I was drenched, sweating from head to toe. Steph and I had our cigarettes in silence that morning, as if we were saving ourselves up, as if we wanted the well to be full, going into the writing and playing. I felt like the mere act of speaking words might have drained us of our creativity, or some other Frankian shit. Steph led the writing process that day, as snow fell lightly outside, all over the hills, becoming just another instrument in the creation of blood in the river. Then, the next day, as the heavy clouds let out an Irish monsoon, which turned yesterday's snow into slush, Amy drove the writing of Soulless Wanderer. Don't know where you're heading, lonely ponderer. You just keep walking the path, ye soulless wanderer. The snow returned the next day, only heavier, as if exacting vengeance upon yesterday's rain for undoing its progress. Despite Eddie's insistence that due to the dampness, it would not lie, lie it did, coating the hills, transforming them into great white lumps. It provided the perfect canvas for Gareth to orchestrate the creation of lucidity, which was a haunting, grinding, ugly song with a strange, unpattered drumbeat that somehow worked. It felt right as the sixth song on our album, as the palate cleanser, so to speak, before drawing the listener into the climax of our tale to when the mirror world would fully bleed into ours, consuming it, cleansing it. It was funny how we'd all taken it in turns, as if creativity itself was an independent force which possessed us each on different days, inhabiting us in equal measure. That night, in my dream, the marble path that twisted through the between world had gone completely liquid so that I could no longer walk on it. Now, I lay on it and floated as it took me away on its current. Maybe it was the fabled river of blood, like the one from Steph's song. The sky above was black and utterly starless, and yet there was a moon, clearly yellow and vivid against the inky backdrop. How did the moon survive when all planets had ceased? Disconcertingly, I felt a chill on my neck, as if it were watching me. Ancient wraiths emerged from their black glass monoliths like bodies spilling from vertical coffins. The rotting, parasitic lepers played their songs, adding a tongueless chant 
as they stood upon the banks of the river and watched over me, and I realized that I could decipher their song, even as it first arrived into my ears in another language. It explained why they looked like us, or, to be more accurate, why we were shaped like them. Their songs had been playing over the backdrop of our world, shaping our evolution until they molded a creature in their own violent image. And now, they were allowing a chosen few to hear the songs in their full glory, and that band of amateurs would find greatness when they transcribed those songs into the human world, presented in the way of an album. That would complete the cycle. One of the ancients trod into the water, ankle deep, and I stared at it. I was afraid that it might reach out and drown me. Instead, it simply gazed down with those holes, those empty, vacant, eyeless eyes. When I awoke, I was relieved to find myself in my room, no longer in the river, weaving and twisting around the doors of the mirror world. Or, that was, I was relieved until I noticed it. In the shadowed corner of my room, there lingered one of those ancient wraiths, staring right at me. I screamed at the top of my lungs, or at least, I believed that I'd screamed at the top of my lungs, because nothing actually emerged from my mouth, apart from dry wind. After that, I awoke again, with my heart pounding, and I gazed into the corner of my room, only to confirm that there was nothing there. When I went downstairs, I saw that the others had emerged from their rooms. Everyone was looking equally rough and drained, like we'd all had several bottles of wine last night, instead of our usual single glass. Steph and I were shaking as we had our morning cigarettes. I decided to finally break the vow of silence by asking, Bad nightmares. Yeah. I don't even know if I can do today. Really? Yeah, I just don't feel mentally all there. I fought on it. No, me neither. Absent of Frank, we all discussed this and we ultimately agreed on it as a band. When Frank entered the main space again, fresh from his cold meditation or whatever other bullshit he was at, we told him in so many words how we were feeling and that we needed a break. His eyes widened. No, no, absolutely not. We can't take a break. But we're exhausted, Amy argued. Even if we took a break for today, we could still knock out nine songs for the album, Gareth said. Aureate, I almost whispered. But Ovmir's Amania is ten songs long, not nine. It's supposed to be ten. If it's not ten, then it doesn't work. What does that even mean? Stephanie asked. Eddie shrugged. Creative types in their ways. He said as if this all could be dismissed as simple quirky behaviour. Listen, Frank said massaging his head. Just five more days. You've all hit the creative slump this morning, which is natural. You get into the middle, where you've achieved a lot, but you're still fairly far away from the end, so self-doubt creeps in. You're in the middle of the ocean, having long ago lost sight of land. But that's a natural part of the process. What happens next is, we get over this hump, we all work through it, and we find that we're even more invigorated than ever before. There was something crazed in Frank's eyes. They didn't quite twitch, but they might have threatened to. I worried what he might do if we were to insist further, but Eddie brought up the idea of taking an hour to listen back to what we'd done so far, and we all agreed. What could it hurt? It'd at least help us make an informed decision. So we all sat in that little sound studio and we all listened to it through the speakers. Even as we did, I was amazed. I heard our voices back, but didn't recall ever having sang those words or played those notes from my sections. Had we really done all that? 
had the five of us really put that piece of work together. I was shaking at the end of it as reality started to hit home. Not only could we publish a proper album, but we could get rich and famous. We could become legends off of this thing. Five more songs, I said. That's all, and we're done. We've gone this far, to the halfway point. Might as well continue. Exactly. Thank you, Connor. Finally, someone is talking sense. Okay, Gareth said. Fine, Amy said. Stephanie shook her head. I could see Frank, preparing to explode until she held up a finger. One more song. That's all I can promise you. One more song, and then I'll see how I feel tomorrow. She searched the room. What do y'all reckon? We take this one day at a time. We nodded. Frank threw up his hands. Suppose that's all I can reasonably ask. Yeah, sure. Let's just focus on getting the next one done for today. Then we'll worry about tomorrow, when we come to tomorrow. We entered the conservatory, and everything that happened after that was a haze. Sometimes, people frame it as a phenomenon exclusive to creative types and athletes, but I think that everyone has experienced the flow state in some way. It's not magic, it's just where you repeat a task, over and over, for some ridiculous amount of time. Some say 10,000 hours, some say it varies based on the task, but the idea is that it's repeated so often that your brain makes it automatic, so that your conscious mind takes a backseat as your subconscious takes the wheel. It gives the illusion that time is lost. I'd say that many people have experienced it with driving or walking familiar routes, with cleaning a familiar area or performing a familiar exercise. But while it's a cool thing to experience as an individual, in a creative sense, it actually does feel downright mystical to experience it among a group, to become so serene and in sync with each other that your atoms almost mesh together to form one being. Or at least, it was magical as we played, wrote and adjusted until that haze thickened, becoming much like one of those dreams, and the ground beneath my feet became like that rippling liquid marble, and I saw those pictures. Amy's pictures, as becoming like those glass monoliths, those entryways into the mirror world, through the black purgatory. I witnessed as the pictures came alive, shifting and swaying to the music. One of the figures partly detached itself from the page. I yelled, breaking the spell, breaking the flow, as my guitar hit the ground and I reeled back, panting. For fuck's sake, Connor, Frank bellowed. We were just getting onto something good there. I wrecked at my face with my fingers. It felt clammy. Are you alright? Gareth asked. You've gone sheet white, Amy said. I tried to explain what I'd seen, but I was babbling. The words were all muddled in my mouth. Was I hallucinating? Was I going mad? Get the fuck out of here, Frank roared. We don't need you for this part. I took a break and went out for a smoke. The snow had frozen, becoming crunchy and rigid instead of light and fluffy. I couldn't even feel the cold though. I kept jolting as the fresh snowflakes fell, because I believed them to be more figures, emerging out of the mirror world. Steph joined me a short while later, and had lit one up before I even knew what was happening. What a fucking asshole, she said. Like, how dare he even speak to you like that? But I was barely even thinking about Frank. I was shaking, reflecting on the smell of dead flowers. Steph, upon noticing my distress, patted my back. Hey, are you alright? I'm grand. I said, not wanting to talk about it in any great detail. Let's just go back inside. When we were back in the main space, Frank was there, looking a bit sheepish as the rest of the band lingered behind him. Frank the Wank had been replaced by Frank the Humble. 
no doubt after receiving some stern words from his bandmates. Listen, Connor, I'm really sorry I went off on you like that. I just got lost in the heat of the moment. You're alright, Frank, I said, navigating my words around my tongue like it was a piece of rubber. I understand, like. Frank ran his hands over his head. Was his hair much thinner than it had been at the start of our trip? Or was that just my imagination? If you want to take a 15 minute break. Oh, how generous of you, Stephanie said. 15 whole fucking minutes? That's nice. He's just trying to get things sorted out, Steph, Eddie said. Stephanie pointed at him, so that her finger hung only inches from his nose. Wasn't talking to you, was I, you wee bum licker? Eddie retreated, before gazing at his feet, subdued. My head was swimming. I breathed and said, I'm sorry, I just don't know where I was at. Sort of freaked out and lost myself. Felt like I blacked out. Maybe it's because I didn't really sleep well, but I don't know, to be honest. Are you alright to continue? Eddie asked. Yeah, sure. Let's get this thing polished off. We went in and finished the song that would appear ninth on the album, that would aptly come to be called The Grey Haze. I barely even remember the 6th, 7th and 8th days, to be honest, apart from bits and pieces, the way you remember little sections of the night after being blackout drunk. I remember there was more yelling at Frank. I remember there being a lot more pauses in our jamming sessions, a lot more interruptions. I remember Steph turning red and calling both Frank and Eddie all sorts of names under the sun. You pair of entitled posh little wankers is one that sticks out quite starkly. And I remember there being emotional breakdowns from all angles. Once, Amy randomly broke down into hysterical sobs which ended with her having to be coaxed out of a locked bathroom. Another time, Gara threw up onto one of his drums and just continued on playing like he hadn't even realised. I guess what I remember most from those pair of days, in particular, were the horrible dreams of those parasites surrounding me, piling onto me as I floated down the bloody river. They held me under as the black, putrid water filled my nostrils, my mouth, and finally my lungs. It burned from the inside, as if eating at my teeth, my tongue, my gums, my eyes, and the rest of my face, like acid. I could only hear muffled trembles as the music played on and on, because my eardrums were dissolving too. I recall, in one of the glass monoliths, encased inside, was Frank, but not the Frank the Wank of present day. No, it was the old Frank, the quiet, shy fellow that I'd first met after we put an ad out for a singer. He was pounding on the monolith, begging to be set free. When I awoke on the ninth day, I was like a zombie. I don't recall getting from my bedroom to the living room. It was like I just appeared there, on the sofa, like a cut scene from a TV show. I squeezed my eyes together, thinking that I'd do just about anything in the world just then for a fucking aspirin. Right, Frank said, pacing back and forth. Right. I gazed at him, wondering who on earth this was. More of his hair had fallen out. His skin was all jaundiced and wrinkled. His forehead was covered in an almost teenage-like acne. There were rashes all over his hands, though I'd never known him to have eczema. I know the tensions got a little bit high there yesterday, but we're so close. We're so fucking close to finishing this thing off. Two songs, two songs, and I'm telling you right now that what we have may well be incredible, but those songs are not only going to be the best on the album, but perhaps the best two songs ever written. By anyone. We're so fucking close to finishing this thing off. Two songs. They're going to be our number one and our number ten on the album our two singles, the intro and the climax. We haven't even written our stairway to heaven yet, but it's coming. Can't you feel it? 
I feel it in my bones. We were more likely to write an elevator to hell at this stage. The others warbled a response. I could only grunt my acquiescence. We all went out to create again. I felt much too tired to play, but also too tired to argue. My body was only capable of focusing on one task after another. I don't know where the will to play came from, but it arrived just on time, as if my arms were being manipulated by puppeteer strings. Everyone in the band played like that. We played and played until the familiar haze thickened around us. Soon, there were wraiths in the room, with us. I saw them dancing between us. I saw them singing as they surrounded us. The ones that surrounded me ran their hands all over my body, and the burning, scorching heat felt like tiny, bursting orgasms prickling my skin. Even in all my misery, I relished that pain. I grinned, baring my teeth, until I heard screeching. The air rushed around me as I woke up. Steph was yelling for it to stop. Stop! 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 She cried out. Whatever we're digging into stops right here, right now. I'm putting my shovel down. And what are we digging into exactly? Frank demanded. His skin looked like it didn't belong to his face anymore. He was deranged. We glanced about each other. Even Eddie, the ever-reliable bum licker that he was, was pale and bug-eyed. Was he chattering? Jesus. It was freezing in here, as cold as it was outside, or even colder somehow. Frank waved a dismissive hand. You're all being stupid. The breath fogged out of his mouth. So fucking stupid. We're onto something special here. Something that could be generational. We need to just release a shorter album with what we've got, Amy said. The runtime will still be respectable, and the songs will still be hits. It doesn't work without the rest of the album. We need the intro and the climax. It's a fucking concept album, Frank barked. The mythology doesn't make sense without the other parts. It's like releasing random scenes from a movie. We can't do it, Frank, I said, sweating, utterly exhausted. We can't. We have nothing left on us. But here's the thing. I've often heard people speculate as to why so many people die during mountain climbing. Why don't they turn back when things get bad? Yes, it is possible to suffer from hypothermia or another ailment that masks the suffering. But surely there are other signs of deterioration for days prior while the subject continues to climb through worsening symptoms. I will tell you what I believe. I believe that people simply acclimatize to pain, and their muscles will become comfortable to that motion of climbing. In fact, there is a point where it is harder to stop, where it takes more willpower to recognize you've damaged your health and to turn back. Perhaps it's just a sunk cost fallacy. That's the only way I can explain it. As to why we saw it through that ninth day, we were all simply more comfortable holding our instruments than being deprived of them. The spell somehow hooked us again, and one by one we began to play, to create, because that was what was now most familiar. The haze inhabited the room again, as did the bodies of the parasites. Frank stood in the very centre, dancing and swaying with them, as if he were a sort of king figure. Beyond all of them lay a fissure of light. As I stared into it, I saw eternity. I saw a place that even the most educated physicists in our world would struggle to comprehend, and with every song we had written, every note we had played, the slither had grown a little bit wider. The next day, I felt like I was terminally ill as I awoke. Before getting dressed, I just sat there, sobbing and rocking back and forth for almost an hour. When I descended the stairs, I did so with all the mobility of a 98-year-old man. I now saw that each of my bandmates had aged at least a decade since I'd last seen them. Amy was stick-thin, 
having lost loads of weight, and Gareth kept on blinking and staring into empty space, as if unsure where he was. As Steph and I had our morning cigarettes, I saw that her hair was brittle, like straw. She kept on muttering to herself, and all I could make out from it was, Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't. Can't. Can't do it. I pulled her tight, into a hug, as the snow continued to fall around us. I fought, once again, of mountains, and I knew for a certainty that we were never going to see the peak of this one. We confronted Frank again. He was the sole one among us who actually somehow seemed whole, like he'd experienced a second wind in the night and had actually gained energy and vitality. He didn't look himself though. His face was more pointed and angular, as if his very bone structure had been altered. It's one more song. One more fucking song to finish. Surely we can pump it out. He's in league with them. A voice in my head was screaming at me. He wants them to win. We can't, Frank, Amy said. It's killing us, Steph said. We just need to push through, he shouted. No, we won't do it. You can't make us do it, Gareth declared. Is there any one of you left who can even see a bit of sense? He widened his arms before gazing at me. My lips moved against each other. He wants the gateway to open. He wants to let them in. Don't let him finish. I shook my head. His expression compressed before he draped an arm around Eddie. My dear cousin, you have always had my back. Eddie drew in a deep, shaky breath. Let it go, Frank. Whatever this album has brought on us isn't right. Let's just publish the nine songs we have. You don't mean that. I do. It's over. In response to that, he hit Eddie. He full on pushed him away and then bitch slapped him. Eddie hit the ground and sprawled out. His eyes were wide in surprise. I was struck by the realisation that this illness that had befallen us wasn't as terminal as I'd feared, but may just be like a flu. And maybe if we just left now, then whatever curse this song had cast over us would be broken. And this would only be a temporary state that had soon become removed from us. I knew, with such vivid clarity, that we'd forget how to play them and would find them too traumatic to even listen back to, that we would ultimately be unable to put them out into the world. Maybe Frank intuited that as well, which was why he pushed so hard for it to be finished, because eventually, Strangle Cat would not only ensure that all the songs remained unpublished, but that they'd be destroyed too. That's it, Frank, Steph said. That's it. We are leaving, right now. Leaving, are you? He said veering around and rushing up to her, but I was so sharp to stand between them. Frank was only small compared to me. I doubted he'd ever seen the inside of a gym in his life, but he had this animal rabidness in that moment that scared me. He was like a raccoon. Yeah, we are, I said. You've taken this too far, Gareth said. We all have, Amy muttered. He turned away from me and stalked back into the kitchen. He began grabbing plates, bowls, mugs and glasses out of the cupboard and started smashing them against the floor. It sounds theatrical now, but the way he did it, the way he growled, frothed and threw about his head only served to frighten me more, aiding that rabid animal notion. As I watched, I couldn't help but recall how that Frank, the shy one from the beginning, had been trapped in my dream, contained in that large glass monolith. Fine. Leave. Fuck you all. I'll get the album done by myself. I'll do an acoustic version if I have to, or I'll play every single layer by myself. It'll be mine. It'll be mine. It'll be Frank Taggart's album, not Strangle Cat's. Before any additional insanity could be spewed into our direction, before things could escalate further, we all dispersed and packed as quickly as possible. 
once we were gathered, we all piled into my Cleo. I drove through the severe snow in utter silence, with Eddie, Steph, Amy and Gareth observing that same silence just as religiously. I couldn't stand it after a while, so I turned on the radio, only to be assaulted by Christmas songs. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer blared, adequately drowning out our thoughts as I kept hoping and praying that the car wouldn't get stuck or slide off the road and plunge us into a ditch somewhere. Of course you all know that Strangle Cat somehow survived that era. After a two-year hiatus, we all reformed with Steph as our lead singer, and her new girlfriend Petra joining us as a pianist and backing vocalist, giving us a completely different style and sound. Although we did tour and write loads more original content, we never attempted anything so ambitious as a concept album ever again. We never even discussed our Of Mirrors and Mania era, never mind actually playing the songs. I felt like I wouldn't even recall how to play them now if I tried. Throughout that period, you all kept asking me whatever happened to that Frank fella, and I was always coy on what caused the band to fall apart. Well, now you know. The question that probably remains for you is, did he see it through? Was he able to go solo, to finish the final song and publish the album? Well, I actually bumped into him once, in a thrift shop of all places. I was searching for a coat to buy my dad and had a limited budget. I expected either an apology, an evasion, or even a possible temper tantrum from him. Instead, he was vacant, completely and utterly unresponsive to my words. He looked so much frailer and older than when I'd last seen him. Originally, he'd been the youngest in the band, but now, he could pass for my opioid-addicted uncle. He just kept touching the material of the knitwear, as if he liked it, as if that was all he was now capable of processing. It was like he'd been lobotomized. Frank. Frank. It's me. It's Connor, but he never met my eyes. I wanted to pat his shoulder, to tell him that I forgave him or something to that effect, but even just being in the same space as him gave me chills. In the irises of those eyes, I thought I saw familiar, glinting darkness, like those glass monoliths in the land in between. Quickly, I left him to it, and I never saw him again. <laughs>